Well, we uh, take questions, so if you wanna text your questions to that number during class, it's on your handout online or your handout here. And uh, this Friday we'll be back with over at SoWeSpeak.com with a uh, podcast that answers questions we don't get to in this class. So I've got a lot for this Friday about the Antichrist and uh, the false prophet and then the seven bowls that we'll talk about in this lesson. So we are, where are we? We are gonna talk about chapters 14 through 16. There are 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. We're gonna talk about chapters 14 through 16. But where are we? So up to chapter 12, we've had the first half. It's easier to speak like I'm a futurist in this, that the, the tribulation's a seven-year period in the future. So if that's the case, we have gone halfway through the tribulation. We're three and a half years in. We've had seven seals being opened and cataclysmic things happen on earth. We've had seven trumpets being blown and seven uh, more cataclysmic judgments of God on the earth. And now we're at the three and a half year point. And so in chapter 13, we are introduced to the dragon and the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. And these are symbols, they are images that represent the dragon is Satan or the devil. Uh, and this is in the text. This is not anything uh, that the text doesn't tell you. So the, Satan is the dragon and the beast from the sea is the antichrist. And wherever I, you see that, I'm just gonna substitute the word antichrist. And then the beast from the land is the false prophet. And whenever that says beast and it's referring to that, I'll say false prophet. And so what has Satan done? Satan, if you recall, has rebelled against God. He and a number of the angels with him. And they fought against the angel Michael and the other angels in heaven and they were cast out of heaven. They were condemned. And so here they are on earth. And so Satan decides, I'm gonna spoil God's plan. God wants to redeem all these people, but I want them to serve me. And so he begins to try to foil God's plan of redemption. Well, he fails, doesn't he? The Messiah is born. Jesus dies on the cross and Satan goes, oh, I won, he's dead. And then he's raised from the dead and Satan realizes he's been completely defeated. It's only a matter of time before he is destroyed and his defeat is complete. And so he goes off in the time he has left and he is going to pursue the people of God. He's gonna build a kingdoms of the earth. You remember when he tempted Jesus, he showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and said, these are mine and I'll give them to you if you'll worship me. And Jesus said, no, we worship God alone. But Satan is the ruler of this present world. What does that mean? It means that people, here's what the scripture says, people love darkness better than the light. And so when we rebel against God, when we pursue our self-interest, I wanna be God, not you. We think we're serving ourselves, but we're really enslaved to Satan. And so this world and the powers of this world move to Satan's purposes, which are not constructive. Satan doesn't want peace. Satan doesn't want happiness. Satan wants domination. He wants to be in charge. He wants to be worshiped like God. He wants to be God. And so he makes this little trinity like God, and so God has the Son and the Spirit, now he has the Antichrist and the false prophet. And so he sets up in this world with the unholy trinity and he begins to pursue the people of God. 
So this has been going on since Jesus came for what's called the uh, church age. From the time of the resurrection until the second coming of Christ is called that time of the church, the church age. And Satan has been persecuting God's people. And I wanna give you a feel for that because what you're gonna see when God is judging the earth, it's gonna seem like, wow, this is harsh. But I want you to get a sense of what Satan has been doing through the, the kingdoms of the earth. And so from the time of Nero Caesar, and uh, Nero is 54 to 68 AD. So remember Jesus, let's just assume Jesus raised in 33 AD. So shortly after that, persecution of the Christians begins. That persecution is intense from the time of Nero all the way to the time of Constantine. Think 313 AD. So basically for 220 or 30 years, Christians all over the world are persecuted and killed and put in jail and their property is confiscated, all kinds of persecution of Christians for over 200 years. This is Satan saying, I'm gonna stamp this religion out completely. Well, it didn't work, did it? Because Christianity actually in 313 AD, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. Oh my goodness, how did that happen? We thought we were stamping these people out. But I want you to get a sense uh, just a little picture of what Christians have gone through in the early times and still go through today. So in 64 AD, 10 years into his reign, Nero decides, so this is Satan working through history, right? And working through people. And so 64 AD, Nero decides he wants Rome to look better. So he has a fire started in the slums and he gets out of control and it burns a bunch of Rome and a bunch of Roman citizens die. So Nero goes, oops, this is really bad PR. And so Nero says, I need a scapegoat. And he, this is all historical. What I'm telling you now is uh, you're seeing Tacitus is not the only one that wrote it. Tacitus is a Roman historian, not even slightly Christian, writing and living in that exact era. And he's writing about what Nero did. He didn't like Christians, but he also didn't like Nero. And so Nero decides, I'm gonna blame this on the Christians because they're already a little unpopular because they won't worship me, the emperor, and they won't worship Zeus and all the other gods. So they're bad citizens, they're bad people. So he floods social media with rumors that the Christians did this. And so he begins to persecute the Christians. Tacitus and some of the others aren't fooled, but here's what he says. Neither human resources nor imperial munificence nor appeasement of the gods eliminated the suspicions that the fire had been started by Nero. To suppress this rumor, Nero made up scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. So, by the way, pause. This is very interesting. This is a Roman historian. 30 years after the resurrection of Christ, Christians are called Christians, apparently, right? And they are very widespread, wide enough spread that you could blame them for something like this. And they were considered depraved because it was widely known what they believed. And in this case, they didn't believe in the Roman gods. So he says, and so their originator, Christ, 
had been executed in Tiberius's reign by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. By the way, if you've ever wondered, is Jesus ever talked about outside the New Testament? Yes. Is the crucifixion of Jesus ever talked about outside the New Testament? Yes, it is. This is one place. So Nero begins to persecute them. And Tacitus says this, he said, first, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. And here's what would happen. We said self-acknowledged, they would arrest them because their neighbors would accuse them. And so they'd drag them up on a stage and they'd say, are you a Christian? And if they said yes, they'd kill them. And so he said their deaths were made farcical. Dressed in wild animal skins, they were torn to pieces by dogs or crucified or made into torches. What he would do, and he was trying to whip up, you know, hatred of the Christians. And so he would coat them in pitch and crucify them and light them at night. And so uh, it says he'd light them after dark as substitutes for daylight. But despite their guilt as Christians, Tacitus says, yeah, they're guilty. They don't worship our gods. They, they ought to be punished. But despite that, the ruthless punishment, it definitely deserved. The victims were pitied because it was felt that they were being sacrificed. In other words, they were framed. So people didn't like the Christians because they wouldn't uh, worship the gods, but they felt like even Nero had gone way too far. Well, let me fast forward a little bit. So that's in 64, and that's when the persecution really begins. Uh, for the Christians. Fast forward to the 300s when the persecution in the Roman Empire is over. There's a church, a Christian named Eusebius who writes. And Eusebius writes about all kinds of things that happened for that 200 years. It's, it's really gruesome, but the point is he wrote it down because he wanted to encourage future generations because what they would do is they would go town to town and they would take people that were accused of being Christians and they'd drag them up and they would ask them, do you believe in Jesus? Are you willing to sacrifice to Caesar? And if they said no, they sometimes put them in the arena and let animals loose while people watched for entertainment. But sometimes they would kill them. He talks about sometimes they would just kill them then and there. And they would tit them and they, they would cut off their heads. And then they'd bring up the next one, they'd cut off their heads. In fact, they killed so many Christians that they had to have multiple executioners because their arms got tired. I want you to think about that for a minute. I want you to think about both sides of that, the evil to do that, but also the devotion. Eusebius says sometimes while they were doing that, Christians in the crowd would walk up and they'd say, what are you doing here? He said, I'm a Christian too and I'm next. He said, it got so much that the people finally said enough. Who are these people? And who is this Jesus that they're literally willing to die for him? So I wanted you to get a little bit of a sense of what's happened to the Christians in the past, what's happened throughout history. And now as we begin to talk some more about the tribulation period, what the brutal persecution of Christians. And so Christians throughout history have said to God, how long before justice is done? And God has said, justice will be done. That's what the tribulation is. It's God executing justice on the world in the form of seven seals, seven trumpets, and then we're going to see seven bowls of wrath. So in chapter 14, we begin with this. He said, this is John. I saw an angel flying overhead with the gospel to proclaim the good news for those who dwell on earth. So this is in the middle of the tribulation. 
He says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. In other words, repent and turn to God. This is your last chance. Second angel says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And we'll talk a lot about Babylon the great in chapter 17. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passions of her sexual immorality. I do want you to know that when you see sexual immorality in uh, the scriptures in general, but particularly in Revelation, it's talking about two things. It's talking about literal sexual immorality, a loose moral code that doesn't comport with God's moral code, but it also, and I would argue that these two things are inextricably linked. It also means worshiping idols. I don't mean idols that are set up, but worshiping something other than God, worshiping myself. This is Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one links sexual immorality and infidelity to God. And so they're talking about their idols. And then the third angel said, if anyone worships the antichrist and its image and receives the mark of the beast on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength in the cup of his anger. This is vengeance for all who've been uh, victimized throughout history. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from saying, blessed are those who die in the Lord that they may rest from their labors. Then I looked, he said, and behold, a white cloud. This, I want you to just hold this thought because I'm gonna give you a point of view later. This sure sounds like the end of the world happening here. And we haven't even gotten to the seven bowls, but I want you to see how much this sounds like the end of the world. The white, I looked and on a white clothes, a cloud, seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, in other words, looked like a human being, with a golden crown on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand, and another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice saying, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come. Why is he coming out of the temple? When is Jesus coming? Who decides when Jesus is coming back? The father. Remember Jesus said, even the son doesn't know the time or the hour, but the father. Well, that's why he's coming out of the throne room because God said now is time. And so then another angel came out and he had a sharp sickle and another came out from the altar and he said, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are, are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth. This is a symbolic way of saying, this is judgment happening. And gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle. So you get this idea of justice is being done and the, the good and the evil are being separated. Remember Jesus talking about separating the sheep and the goats and Jesus talking about the, the wheat and the weeds and that at the end, the angels would separate it. This is judgment happening. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues. I need to talk to you about this word for a minute because it doesn't mean the same thing then that it means now. When you think of plague, you think of COVID, right? That's not what this word means. This word means, um, it is the word plague. I mean, it's where we get it, but it's used, let me give you some other times this, this Greek word is used in the New Testament. Do you, uh, here's a good one. Do you remember 
when the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, it starts out by saying there was a man who was on the road to Jericho and some robbers jumped on him and they beat him, that's this word. So they, have not, they don't have seven plagues, like seven strands of COVID. They've got seven blows to be struck, seven, uh, seven calamities. Calamity is another way, catastrophe. It's another way this word's translated. So they bring out seven blows. So though God is gonna hammer the earth seven times, that's his judgment on the earth. And so for with them, the wrath of God is finished. So this is the last of the three sets of seven judgments. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name. What does it mean to conquer them? You stay faithful till death and you have conquered. And so here they are in heaven and they sing the song of Moses. Hold on to that thought for a minute. So those who have been killed, persecuted, whatever, that have stayed faithful to Christ are now in heaven and they're gonna sing the song of Moses and I'll tell you why in a little bit. And the song of the lamb and they say, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear and glorify your name for you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. And so we're about to unleash in the, in the last three and a half years, the seven, pour out the seven bowls of wrath. This is forecast. Now we're gonna go all the way back to the Apostle Paul, shortly after the resurrection. Book of Romans says this, this is the thesis of the book of Romans. The wrath of God, the justice of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness turn from the truth, suppress the truth. What Paul said was going to happen here in Revelation, it is happening. This is the judgment of God. So let's look at the bowls. By the way, I put a picture of a bowl, because when you think about bowls of wrath, you're thinking, are these coffee cups? You know, what do we got here? So the, the, think of a shallow bowl like this. And this was known to everybody because it was used in all kinds of worship. Like when you worshiped uh, Jupiter, the chief god of the Romans, you would take these bowls and you'd pour wine out of these bowls as a libation or an offering to the god. And so when, when they said bowls, they thought, oh, we, we got a priest doing some kind of sacrifice here. We have some kind of, of uh, worship of the gods going on here. And so he said, yeah, as a matter of fact, but here's what's gonna happen. When the sanctuary was opened, out of the sanctuary came seven angels with the seven catastrophes, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. This sounds like a priestly attire, okay? It sounds like priests. And one of the four living creatures, met them back in chapter four, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven blows were finished. So what are they? Let's dive in. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So remember what's going on on the earth. So on the earth, you have Satan, and the Antichrist and the false prophet. And the Antichrist, I'm gonna give you a futurist view because that's probably what most people know. Think Antichrist is a world leader, political leader, military leader, and he's gathered together a number of nations and war is happening 
Most futurists think war against Israel, by the way, but war is happening and he's gathering power. First three and a half years, he made a treaty with Israel. This is a futurist view, but well, let's just go with it because it's fun. And so he made a treaty with Israel and then in the middle of it, he's gonna break the treaty and he's gonna desecrate their temple and he's gonna invade. And that's what's happening on the earth. So these events come into that setting of turmoil and war and domination and the mark of the beast. And if you don't have it, you Christians, you're persecuted and you're killed and you can't purchase food and it's just a horrifically bad time, right? So that's what's going on. And so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. This lesson is rated PG-13. I probably should have mentioned that to you before. But this is just really blunt language. And it became like the blood of a corpse and everything in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl onto the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. So I want you to remember, hold this thought, the sores and the waters turning to blood. And let's go ahead and finish. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these catastrophes. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, so a lot of symbology there, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. So God is specifically targeting the Antichrist and his power in some sense or another, and the whole thing was thrown into darkness. So you get this darkness over everything. And it says this, the people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores, and they still did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. If you're a futurist, you love that verse because we're now talking about the Antichrist kingdom linking up with Russia and China, etc. and you got this big army coming. Okay, so that's one point of view, but what you see happening here is God is allowing the Antichrist to gather up all of his armies. So let me give you a summary. We haven't had the seventh bowl yet, but let me go ahead and give you a summary of this. And then we'll talk about what does this mean. So you have sores, you have uh, sea turning to blood, the fresh water turns to blood, you get people being scorched by the sun, uh, the beast's empire is plunged into darkness and the Euphrates uh, dries up. So I wanna uh, spend a little time saying, what is, what is going on here? What does this mean? Well, it kind of depends on your view, doesn't it? You thought you were gonna get away without a recap of these four views, didn't you? So now I wanna remind you of this and I'm gonna tell you how each one of them understand these, these things that are happening. So the preterist says, all of this happened back in 70 AD and it's talking about the fall of Jerusalem and all these symbols are talking about certain Roman generals and Roman uh, emperors and I'm gonna kinda leave it behind now. It's, it's not the most popular so let's let it sit in history. Now the historicist says these are part of this whole chapter four to chapter 19 is mapping out in a symbolic way all of the history of humanity. 
and that all these different kings and all of that, they have been real people throughout history. Futurist says, no, it's not a map of history. All of this is gonna happen in the future in a seven-year period. And we're literally in the middle of that seven-year period. And I'll tell you what they think about the seven bowls. Symbolic view says, this is all true, but boy, this sure seems very symbolic. It's trying to tell us a truth, but it's trying to tell us in very imagery kind of ways. Think of more poetry rather than prose. And so they're gonna say, and I'll tell you what they're gonna say about what's happening here, but basically this is God telling you an eternal truth. So let's break this down. I'm just gonna use this chart again. Uh, you'll see it again later, but it's useful for what I wanna do. So let's talk about first uh, the historicist view. The historicists think that the seven bowls represent a period of history that is 1793 uh, all the way up to now. In other words, hasn't finished yet, okay? So the seven seals were all back in history. The seven trumpets were all kind of through the Middle Ages. But these bowls are from 1793. You need to know just a, a little bit more history. So I wanna take you back to 533 AD. The emperor Justinian, Roman emperor, in 533, remember the persecution's over, it's okay to be a Christian. The Roman emperor Justinian designated that the bishop of Rome, the head of the church in Rome, was superior to the bishops in all of the other churches. And Protestants would say, that's the beginning of the papacy. That's the first pope. Pope is the bishop that's over the other bishops, okay? And so this is not, the, this is not what Catholics believe, but I'm just telling you because the historicist view is almost, ex well, ex exclusively Protestant. And most of the people who thought that were Luther and Calvin and Wesley and those people that were, were rebelling against the Catholic Church in the Reformation, okay? So 533, Justinian says, basically we got a pope. Now take 1,260 days, the three and a half years, and pretend those are years, and what does that get you to? 1793, oh man, the math works. Okay, so they basically say that here are the seven bowls 1,260 days, three and a half years, into the tribulation, that equates to 1793. They also, historicists universally believe that the Antichrist is papal Rome, meaning not a particular pope, but the papacy itself, the institution of the papacy. And they believe that that's an Antichrist and that the papacy that the Catholic Church throughout history led people away from Christ by various things. Remember, these are the Protestant reformers who hold this view. So they think that the Antichrist is the papacy. Well, what happened in 1793? What judgment was poured out on the papacy? If you're a historicist, right? You think that's the Antichrist. Well, interestingly enough, so I want you to think this real historical, right? Because it's called the historicist view. So the French Revolution is, it, it, I'm gonna just give you some rough dates. 1789 to 1799, 
rough dates, that actually the wars start a little bit later. But anyways, that's the French Revolution. What happened in the French Revolution? French Revolution was just an ugly period of time, but one of the things that happened is it killed all the Catholic priests in France, and they burned down all the Catholic churches. And so historicist says, well, there you go. This is the beginning of the seven bowls are pouring out God's wrath on the papacy, on the papal Rome. So in a nutshell, that's what historicists think are happening with these seven bowls of wrath, and they're not done. God, it's still going, it goes all the way up till the second coming of Christ, because this is the end of the tribulation here. Okay? So that's a historicist view of what's going on. Symbolic view of what's going on says, you know, these things are not necessarily tied to events in the past, like the historicists think, are not necessarily tied to the future. The, what's happening here, the, Symbolic looks at this and says, okay, we've got some plagues, some judgments. Let's see, we've got sores, we've got darkness, we've got water turning to blood, you're gonna have hailstones in a second, spoiler alert. We got hailstones. What is that starting to sound like? We're also gonna have frogs. And you go, oh, well, you're talking about the Exodus. Yes, I am. Okay, so the 10 plagues or judgments all the way back in history when God was bringing his people and Moses out of Egypt and he judged Pharaoh, he struck 10 blows, if you will, at Pharaoh. Each one directed at an Egyptian god, and there was darkness over the land, and the Nile turned to blood, and people had sores, and all of these things are happening. So Symbolic goes, man, this is too much to be a coincidence. God's trying to get us to think of the Exodus here, the Exodus motif, meaning God's people were enslaved in Egypt, God sent a deliverer, judged the kingdom of the world, Pharaoh, and said, let my people go, and they left and went to the promised land. That's called the Exodus story, or the Exodus motif. What's happening here? All God's people were enslaved to Satan. Because of our sin, Satan had a mortgage on our souls, and God sent a deliverer. Remember Moses in Deuteronomy says, God will send someone like me from your people and he will raise him up and he will be a deliverer and you must obey him. It's considered a messianic prophecy of Moses from 1400 years before Christ. So what's happening here? Christ comes, frees the people from Satan, how? by death on the cross and bearing our sins and he took the mortgage on our soul, this is Colossians, and nailed it to the cross and said, you don't own these people anymore. And Satan said, fine, I'll just torment them. I'm mad, I'm gonna just try and kill as many of these people and make them as miserable as I can. But we are free from the power of Satan and our future is guaranteed. We will go to the promised land and we will be with God. This is the Exodus story. So Symbolic says, man, this couldn't be any plainer. God is reminding us of the Exodus story and he's saying that's what's happening to you. That's what's happening in the 21st century. That's what was happening in the 17th century. That's what was happening when you were being persecuted by Rome back in the third century. He's telling Christians of all ages, this is me telling you, I will judge the world. You saw what I did for the Jews in history, I will do that for all of my people 
and you will come to the promised land and be with me in heaven. Chapter 14, we opened and there they are in heaven. So symbolic says this is true, but it's not really talking about a specific person. It's talking about an eternal truth that's true in every generation for every persecution you suffer. Does that make sense? That's the symbolic view. Historicist view says, no, I think it's a French Revolution. So let's go to the futurist view. What do the futurists think is happening? Futurist, so simple. It's basically this. We're right in the middle of the tribulation. Got three and a half years left. We've had seven seals. We've had seven trumpets. That's a trumpet. And we're halfway through, and now we're in the great tribulation, and this is pretty bloody, right? So now we're gonna have the seven bowls, the seven blows that God is going to strike. And when this is done, then Jesus is gonna come again. And then we're gonna start the millennium, which we'll get to. But the futurist view is pretty simple because you take it all very linearly. This happened, then this happened, then this happened, and it happens in a seven-year period. And the only real disagreement amongst the futurists, when you think back to those bowls, one group of futurists says, those are literally the events that will happen. These are supernatural events that in the future, in the world like we see it, with the Antichrist ruling and fighting, that you are literally gonna see sores break out on the people that serve him, not on the people that were uh, the Christians who are being persecuted. Does that remind you anything from the Exodus? 10th plague, death of the firstborn, not the Christians though. Same idea, so it's not gonna happen to the Christians. And then darkness over all the world then literally the seas turn to blood and all the animals die and the world is just collapsing. This is, this is a climate catastrophe, okay? In other words, God is supernaturally making these things happen. Hailstorm stones really do fall from heaven. So some futures say this is clearly God. You notice that the people during these plagues curse God because they know God must be doing this. So these are real events that are happening. Other futurists say, yes, they're real events, but this is describing the effects of nuclear war. In other words, instead of literally sores are happening, that's the effect of radioactivity. The people are getting radiation sickness because the beast is unleashed. The Antichrist has unleashed nuclear war against Israel. And as you can see, you're going, man, if I'm a futurist, I'm getting nervous, right? I'm reading the newspaper and I'm getting nervous. Yes, futurists are always nervous. All right, so there's, you see this happening, you're thinking, man, I, this sounds really true, right? And it does, doesn't it? So that the futurists really disagree only amongst themselves on is it literal supernatural thing God is doing or is this the effects of a nuclear war? Does that make sense? Those are the three views and that's what they think is happening in this thing. So you see... You'd say to me, you'd say, Terry, this is a really divergent point of view. Yes, it is. In other words, historicist, futurist, symbolic, they explain this very differently, but if you stop and think about it, they all agree on the fundamental truth that is being taught here. God is going to deliver his people. He is going to judge the kingdoms of the earth, and we will live with him forever. 
And so everybody agrees, they just wanna interpret this symbolism a little bit differently. So these are all orthodox views and they may not all be correct, but they all hold to the same truth, okay? So questions before we go on to the frogs. <laughs> and I'm not talking about TCU, okay. Okay, we'll ask this first because you've got the picture up there. So if I'm a futurist and I um, believe that this is a nuclear war. Yes. Wouldn't I also think I would be gone by then? Yes, good point. So futurists, not, I'm gonna show you later a chart. Futurists hold three different views. Some say that the church is raptured. And when I say rapture, you know what I mean, that it's a, it's a separate event than the second coming of Christ and the Christians are swooped off the earth, right? Some of them say it happens at the end of the tribulation, and I'm like, really, why bother? Anyway, in the middle of the tribulation, but most futurists think the rapture, Christians leave at the beginning, before the tribulation. So if you're a futurist, you probably think that the church, Christians, are gone. Now there are people who become Christian in that seven year period, but that the church is gone. Yes, that is the standard view, broadly speaking, of futurists. That makes nuclear war look simpler. Yes, I suppose. It makes it look less uh, worrisome. Okay, if one has the mark of the beast, can he repent? Well, I'm going to say yes, and it's an inference from these scriptures. I, I won't flip back to it, but as you read through the pouring out of the bowls and, and as he poured them out, you notice two times in there, it says, and they cursed God for this, and they did not repent. So it's, I won't be dogmatic, but I'm gonna assume since it mentions that they did not repent, that they could repent. But I want you to know that the text isn't entirely clear, but that's an inference that I would draw from the fact that it says that two times. So I presume that yes, people could still repent, and people might, if you're a futurist, you go, there may still be people that go, you know what? I need to turn around, this is so obvious and I wanna serve God. I, my opinion would be the text implies that, is that fair? Okay, a couple of questions about the historicist view. How do historicists reconcile the fact that Satan is thrown in the lake of fire forever? We, yeah, along with the Antichrist, yeah. So uh, historicists don't have any heartburn with that because here's the thing. All of these views are going to come together at the second coming of Christ, which is going to happen in chapter 19. Okay, so you, you don't have long. But they basically say chapter four through 19, historicists say it's a roadmap of history. Futurists say, no, it's gonna happen in the future. And symbolic says it's, it's recurring truths. But they all, when you get to 19 and you say, that sure looks like Jesus is coming back, the historicists are gonna go, yep. And symbolic are gonna go, yep. And futurists are gonna go, yep. In other words, all those views come together in chapter 19. So the lake of fire down there in chapter 20, everybody's great with that. They're all together. We're gonna split over something else in chapter 20, but we're gonna be done with the historicists and the futurists and the symbolic. They all come together because they all believe in the second coming of Christ. Okay, so this gets to that point. Historicists believe that it's 1260 years 
But doesn't that imply that the Great Tribulation is the next 1260? So this would all end in 3053. Yes, that you could make that inference, but they don't. In other, is that fair enough? In other words, yes. If you say, if you're going to interpret it that way there, you need to interpret it that way there. And they go, no, I don't think I will. And so they don't make predictions about the end of the world. Okay. So yes, I see what you're saying, but historicists don't do that. They just say, we don't know. Why? Because Jesus said, we don't know. So they, they are Bible believing. These are all orthodox views. So let's go on and see what happens after that. So all these bowls of wrath get poured out, which means all these calamities happen. What do you think the Antichrist is going to do? What is Satan going to do? Well, I'm glad you asked. So in 16, it says this. John says, and then I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the Antichrist and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits that looked like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing all kinds of signs, quasi-miracles, and they go out to all the kings of the world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And they assembled all the kings of the earth at a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. We're not gonna have the battle of Armageddon yet. We're gonna have that in chapter 19. But So what does he do? He says, oh yeah? You're gonna judge me? You're gonna cause this? Well, then let's just throw down. This is like two hockey players and off come the jerseys and off come the gloves. And he says, I'm gonna gather all the world together and I'm going to destroy every single Christian left. We're just gonna have the massive battle. And so he goes out and he gets the kings of the earth and he begins to bring all of the armies together. And a lot of people think this is gonna be around Jerusalem but basically brings all the armies together and he deceives the kings of the earth and he says, come here and all this will stop. What's the Antichrist saying? All this is being caused by those Christians, by God's people. What did Nero say? All this is being caused by those Christians. And what did they say for 200 years? Those vile Christians who won't worship the gods, they're responsible for everything bad happening to us. That's exactly what, you notice how this plays itself out over and over, doesn't it? That's exactly what the Antichrist is saying. You need to come join me. We've got to stamp these people out because that's what caused all of this. And so he's going to gather all of the armies together. And I want to remind you of Ephesians 6.10. So God sees this. And so all the way back when the Bible's being written, when Paul's writing this letter, he's telling you things to prepare for this. Listen, now listen to Ephesians 6 in this, in, now that you know this. Finally, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power, not yours. Put on the armor of God so you may be able to stand against the schemes of Satan. For we do not battle against flesh and blood but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. You may be able to withstand in the evil day, the day of persecution, the day of, uh, of Satan trying to destroy us, and having done everything, you will stand firm. The New Testament is written not as a moral code, although it certainly does teach us how to live, to be faithful to God, all these letters in your New Testament are written with the book of Revelation in mind. 
why would you say stand against the devil's schemes? You're like, I'm just trying to be a good person. That's not Christianity. What's happening here is a cosmic battle of Satan wants to destroy you. And in the New Testament, you see the backdrop of everything there is a day is coming when you will defeat Satan by your faithfulness to God and you will be brought into heaven. All, this, all these things are being written with revelation in mind. You need to read the whole story and then it's like, oh, this makes perfect sense. Question? Okay, so does that imply that Jesus would have been teaching the apostles about this before John had the revelation? I do not believe that Jesus was teaching them about this in the detail that you and I know it. Matthew 24 is a little cryptic, but we've quoted Matthew 24, and he's saying a lot of the same things, but not in this much detail. I think God tells us what we need to know. So my opinion is they don't show any sign of knowing the whole story, and I'm really glad. I don't know about you, but I don't want to know all the challenges that are ahead. All I need is the faith to confront the next challenge. And God will give you the faith to confront the next challenge. And I think God is gracious to us that he does not overwhelm us with everything at once. Sufficient, Jesus said, do not worry. Sufficient to the day is its own trouble. And God will give us provision a day at a time. I don't think they knew any more than what we know from like Matthew 24. But the Holy Spirit is writing this, is inspiring them to write this, and the Spirit knows more than the people proclaiming it do. So that's my opinion on that, just considered opinion. And I think that's true for the Old Testament prophets as well. Okay, so where do the Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah come into this? Yes, where do the Jews come to this, into this? In an extremely complicated way. And I wanna hold that thought until we get to um, chapter 19. And then I wanna to talk to you, I wanna actually dive in a little more into the futures view. Okay, historicists, Jews don't play any part. Symbolic, Jews don't play any part in this. They're just unbelievers or they're believers. Futurists complicate things. Some futurists think the Jews are gonna show back up in this story, and other futurists think not. But when the time comes, I'll tell you where the Jews show up in the futurist story. Good question, but let's wait till we get there. It'll make a lot more sense when we get there, okay? So the seventh angel comes out and pours out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne. This is from the throne room, this is God. It is finished. You ever remember somebody else saying it is finished? Because Jesus on the cross said it is finished. And on Thursday, I'm gonna tell you what I think he meant by that. And that will make an awful lot of sense into why God's saying that now. The whole plan is finished, Satan is doomed, and judgment has come. And victory, it's, it is finished means your troubles are done, your victory is here, okay? So he said, it's finished. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, all symbolic of judgment. Great earthquake, symbolic of judgment. And the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her, this is just beautiful literature, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. 
And every island fled and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the judgment of the hail because the judgment was so severe. And so things have come to a crescendo and Satan has got everybody together for one last roll of the dice. And so this is what happens right at the end of the tribulation. And I wanna end with this, because I wanna put this in a little bit of a perspective for you. So let's just pause, what do we know? No matter what view you have, you see that this period of tribulation is coming to an end. In chapter 17 through 19, God has some interesting things to say, but at chapter 19, second coming of Christ, Battle of Armageddon is gonna happen. So we're at the end. So let's pause here for a second. And God has poured out his judgment and he's just about for the final battle with evil and the final vindication of his people. This passage, you should read Ephesians 2 a lot. Read the whole book a lot. Because this letter, as Paul is writing, this is a summary version of all of this story. Just listen to how pretty this is. You used to be dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once lived when you followed the course of this world and you belonged to the prince of the power of the air. What is that? Satan used to own you. He said, and that is the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, our lusts, our desires, our greed, our pride, our envy, carrying out the desires of the body and the desires of the mind, we were by nature children of wrath. This is written 60 AD, and now you see we are at the end of time. We are at the end of the tribulation, and you understand what children of wrath actually means. Does that make sense? Okay, I wanna throw in one other side thing, as long as we're here. So on the cross, do you remember when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And I think he meant two things. One, if you think about it, you go, he is gracious and forgiving. Despite the fact that they're crucifying me, I'm still willing to die for them. Because God so loved the world that whoever trusts in him even the ones that crucified him can turn and trust in him and be saved. And that is what he meant. He meant, I want you to forgive them. They're not excluded from salvation. But also think he's hanging there on the cross and he sees this. He knows how this story ends. And he looks around at all of these people who are owned by Satan who are chasing our own lusts and our own desires. We wanna be God. And he says, they have no idea what they are doing. Is that, is that not powerful? He says, if you only knew what your destiny will be, and it's going to be these bowls of wrath being poured out and the torment, people gnawing their tongue because of their torment. And Jesus sees that, he says, Father, they have no idea what they're doing. And I like for us to look at the book of Revelation, and I realize unbelievers don't read this book, but this ought to say to us, there's a stark choice, there's a judgment of God, and God is gracious to have rescued me from that. And that's what this says. 
You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. It starts with you and it says, but God, because he has so much mercy and because for some reason he has this great love for us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I like to read that now that you know Revelation. And now we look back and we say, how true that is. How gracious is our God. I think it's hard to appreciate the grace of God until you realize what you've been saved from. And so tonight's lesson is a little picture of what you and I were saved from. And I hope that motivates us, as it did Jesus, to speak to people in the world who are lost. They have no idea what they have done. And therein lies the basis for our evangelism to the world, is please accept the grace of God if only you knew the consequences. And God is gracious to give us all a little peek of the consequences of sin. I don't know about you, but I didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm a really good person. I think I'm gonna follow God. He's probably lucky to have me. That isn't how it happened. I said, I'm gonna live my life my way. And God said, come talk to me in a little bit. And sure enough, years passed and I go, this is a disaster, right? and you get to real pain and the sores, you know, are that's what sin does to you. On the inside or on the outside, sin's gonna scar you. And when it did, I turned to God and I said, help, rescue me. And he gave me a little picture, enough to know that I needed to be rescued. And then I come to be a Christian and I read this and I go, I had no idea what he rescued me from. So rejoice in the Lord because he's been gracious to rescue us. Two weeks from now, we're gonna talk about, in chapter 17 through 19, feel free to read that. He's going to talk about his judgment on the kingdoms of the earth. And if you want to, see if you're a futurist, you, you really can't talk that much about it. If you're a historicist, you're stuck at the French Revolution. But if you're a symbolic person, we could talk about Iran. So we'll see, see what you guys wanna talk about. I'll see you guys next time.